Well, this topic, I want to talk about the cultural and educational implications of Ephesians 6.4. Um, you know, we're often asked questions uh, <clears throat> about our educational views and our practices and such here at Heritage Ministries. And, you know, we have friends and neighbors and relatives and visitors and acquaintances, whatever, comment on our children. And, and most of the time, they, they comment on how mannerly they are and uh, polite and gifted and talented and well-behaved and, and we like that. I mean, we appreciate that our children is, is putting forth a positive, a very positive testimony and we appreciate hearing about it. But let me say that, you know, if we've gained any successes uh, over the years in parenting and education, it's going to be because the Lord has been so kind to help us understand the biblical admonitions uh, and, and, and begin to at least imply on some level uh, in ways that has, has affected their lives and our lives as we attempt to do the will of God. So we like to hear about that, but we, we, we want to give credit where credit's due here. So the Lord's helped us and been so kind to be there all along. Now, I want to begin <clears throat> by mentioning an inquiry that... Uh, that changed my life. Um, I was brought up in a Christian home and I was raised on a small farm in northern Indiana. Uh, attended a small rural public school. I was maybe a little bit better, maybe a little bit more than an average student, not much, but maybe. And uh, I was an athlete, 4-H and FFA and you know all those kinds of things. But unfortunately, after high school, I set out as a prodigal in my late teens. And I was going to find my way in the world and uh, to build my own Tower of Babel, if you will. I was going to make a name for myself. I was going to seek fame and fortune. And fortunately, I didn't find either. Uh, and at the time, the things of God simply were of very little concern to me. Uh, I, I, I was definitely centered in my own selfish uh, ambitions and future successes and such. Um, but in my late 20s, I think it was 28 or 9, I came to God, found my way back to the Father's house. And shortly after that, the Lord called me out of public schools uh, to help with the education and an evangelistic ministry of our local church. Then a few months after that, we opened a Christian school, and that set me on a, a completely different path. Now, soon after I left the public schools, um, which was 40, you know, 40 years ago now, I was confronted by a friend of mine. It was 19, 1978. His name was Carl Reynolds. And Carl presented me with a question as to whether or not there was such a thing as an authentic Christian philosophy of Christian education. Whether that existed, whether there was an authentic Christian education by philosophy, definition, however you want to call it. In other words, one that would be defined by biblical principles for the teaching and training of children. One that was authentically theistic, if you will, consistent with the Word of God. And was there, a, was there an educational philosophy that 
you know, address the, you know, the how and who and why and when and all those, uh, all those matters from God's perspective. Well, at the time, I guess I thought I knew something about education. After all, I, I was supposed to be an educator of sorts. And uh, I'd earned an undergraduate degree in business, economics. So I was a high school business teacher. And uh, uh, I, Dan already mentioned I had, I had earned a couple of graduate degrees. I had a master's in secondary education. And then my doctorate was in school administration. I'd been an elementary principal, junior high principal, high school assistant principal, assistant superintendent when I left the district. So that was my little range of experience. And so I had spent a fair amount of time in the classroom and then in, uh, in, in, in school districts and supervision. But when it came to Carl's question, uh, I had to honestly conclude that I didn't know what the answer was. So this accompanied the fact that God was dealing with me it was at the same, basically the same point in time that I was coming to God. So I decided to go on a search to see if I could answer Carl's question. Now, I had no way of knowing really how much I did not know. I had no way of knowing how much I, my, what was going to have to change in my heart first and then in my mind and my, my interpretation of experience and all that kind of, I didn't have any idea uh, how much I didn't know or understand. Nonetheless, Carl's inquiry put me on a path of inquiry, a search, if you will, that would, would change my life forever. Now, there were three significant steps in this little, not little, this significant process. Uh, one, my sweet wife and I decided that we needed to live for God and wanted to live for God, so we both came to the Lord in a wholehearted commitment and relationship to him. Secondly, the Lord really did move providentially uh, to bring, bring me into contact with this community of believers uh, at Homestead Heritage. And thirdly, uh, I was fortunate enough to get a hold of a couple books that I mentioned yesterday, uh, Who Owns the Children, that, which is now Education Exodus and Wisdom's Children. Those two books. Uh, finally begin to clarify and change my, my views and my perspectives on this whole issue. And I had asked God many, 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 many times to give me an answer to Carl's question, to help me understand what, what this thing of uh, authentic, I keep saying authentic Christian education because there there's things out there that call themselves that, but I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know too much about some of them. But anyway, I know there's such a thing as an authentic Christian education. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, God sent me the books. And then 29 years ago, he saw fit to bring, bring us here. So we've been here a while. Now, in that search, <clears throat> I'd soon come to believe that the answer to Carl's question would have to be said in a larger cultural and spiritual context than unknown to both Carl and I. We both were going to have to find that. I don't know what, what happened to Carl, actually. I, I, we, left, we left the area and... I never run across him again. But we had to come to see the same thing that the Lord's been, been sharing here in the last couple of days, that, you know, mankind has been confronted with a cosmic struggle. And, you know, there's two kingdoms in conflict. That was all new to me. Uh, buying for man's allegiance, kingdom of God, the kingdom of institutions of this world. Um, and that these two kingdoms, you know, two, 
cause and bring forth two different cultures, two different communities. There's two ways of knowing. Dan, Brother Dan shared with us uh, before lunch there. Uh, there's two conflicting powers or sources of enabling, maybe I could call them. Um, and they all work together to define our religion. And then our religion gives rise to one of two counterposed educational philosophies. Okay? One's God-centered, the other's man-centered. So I came to see, ultimately, that education is a religious matter, and there's nothing neutral about it, and I think I said it yesterday. Um, and when it's all said and done, I think I, I think I said this yesterday, that education is transmitted religion while culture is our lived religion. It just all depends which religion we're talking about. Okay, is that starting to get clear for some of us? If, if it hasn't already happened? <laughs> One's gonna shape us into the image of God and likeness of God, the other into the image of secular man. Now, with that in mind, <clears throat> I'd like to talk about Ephesians 6.4 here. Uh, Ephesians 6.4 has two parts to it. The first part I'll just mention in passing, I mean, Paul is saying, first thing he says, don't exasperate or provoke your children to anger, which is wrath or resentment. But the second part, he's instructing fathers, and since mothers stand in a position of delegated authority, it applies to them too. But it says, bring your children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, he's, there's two Greek, specific Greek words that's used there. One's paideia and the other's neuthesis. So bring them up in the paideia and the neuthesis of the Lord. Okay? Now, that, those words can be variously translated. Um, let me see here. New American Standard, I think, is discipline and instruction. Uh, the NIV, training and instruction. The New King James is training and admonition. So they're variously translated. But either way, I want to suggest that the English translations of these words really don't capture all of what it seems to me Paul was trying to say to the Ephesian church and to us today. Uh, first, this verse was said in a larger historical context uh, because it went back to the time of Abraham, went back to the time of Moses. And we've, the brothers have mentioned the, the Abraham and you know, down through the centuries, God has called his people out of this world, to be separate and holy, a peculiar people, people set apart. And the first example we always think about, of course, it's, it, rightly so, is Abraham. Uh, and God called him from a pagan, idolatrous, urban culture, Abur, to construct a different sort of family, a new kind of community, based on voluntary relationships between, between man and, 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 and God, or God and his people, I might put it that way. And God's promise to Abraham, as we all know, was one day uh, they were going to settle in a promised land that was going to serve as a cultural alternative to the pagan nations that would surround them at that, at that point in time. And so through Abraham and Sarah's life, God would shape and mold a husband and wife. He would reshape and mold parents. He'd reshape and mold a different kind of family that was going to come forth on the earth. Then the second thing is what I spent some time talking about yesterday. Uh, if, if some of you are here now that weren't there, I, I, I spent a little time talking about Israel's exodus from Egypt, which I, I won't go in again, but nonetheless, that was the second act thing that usually people think about. 
But anyway, I'm going to skip forward now several hundred years here to the New Testament times where Paul is admonishing fathers, again, to bring your children up in Pidea and the new thesis of, of, of Ephesus. Is that what it says? Bring them up in the, of the Lord. Okay? So right off the bat, you know he's got something to say here. And uh, remember, this was a very different world uh, as compared to the time of Abraham, different as, you know, time of Moses. But Paul's message, seems to me, is essentially the same. That is, don't be assimilated. Do not be absorbed in the surrounding world culture. Come out and be separate, demonstrating God's alternative to this whole thing. Now, it's helpful to know, and I think, and I think it was Brother Dan emphasized this a little bit, that Paul is writing to the Gentile Christians in Ephesus, which was in, in Asia Minor. And I want to I share a couple of details about Ephesus because you'll soon get a picture that this was, a, was a, the cutting edge of urban enculturation. Ephesus was a major trade center. It was a center of commerce. Uh, it was one of the most famous and populated urban centers on the Mediterranean Sea. Um, it was a seaport, and, and, and it had direct land routes to much of, of, of the various outlying provinces there in Asia Minor. Uh, it had a stadium, had civil monuments, gymnasiums, temples, lecture halls, theaters. Does that sound familiar? Ephesus was largely, just what Brother Dan was talking about, Ephesus was one of the products of the Hellenized world. It's heavily influenced by Greek culture and their philosophy, their worldview, first the Greeks, then the Romans. Now, these Gentile Christians knew exactly what the word paideia meant. Paideia was a total way of life. The Greek culture was their, was their civil religion, if you will. The Greek city-state was uh, the center around which everything evolved. And, and it's one to which you owed total submission and total reliance. So Greek Paideia called for 100% commitment to the pagan philosophy and to the other gods of this world. State's dominion encompassed, I'm going to read you the list. It's, Pretty staggering. The state, the state's dominion encompassed education, religion, temples, the marketplace, economy, polity of the day. It also included vocations, language, art, music, the festivals. It also went so far as to include categories of thought their worldview, their values, their assumptions, their presuppositions, their priorities, concepts, inherited metaphors, and even subtle connotations of meaning. Which means Paideia controlled how they thought and how they acted, thus eliminating virtually the entire private realm of human life and human conscience. Now further to the Greeks, the Greek mind, human rationalism, was the only way to come to know something. In other words, man comes to know by deciding for himself what's good, evil, true, false, sacred, profane. And to the Greeks believed, 
of course, that man was the measure of all things. That's a statement that's been around a long time. And how do you say this? Brother Howard, noose? It's not noose, noose or anything. It's noose. Okay. Oh, in Texas, he says it's noose. So that, I, I said it right. Okay. <laughs> Which is referring to the mind of man. It's a cosmic intelligence. It was viewed as a cosmic intelligence. Noose was the most important investigative, creative force on earth to them, uh, which elevated man to a self-proclaimed place of godhood and uh, self-proclaimed, yeah, godhood is the way I want to say it, which is, by the way, the very thing that God warned them against in the garden, is it not? So, Greek paideia shaped the whole man, and the goal was clear. The purpose was to make Greeks through and through. Then this vision was an enormous ideological task. And to the Greek mind, it was Paideia that brought this, brought this into being. Now, if I understand correctly, and I'm, I think I might, but I'm not positive about this, the word Paideia can be used both as a noun and a verb. Uh, in its noun form, it refers to a place, to a context, to a habitat, total way of life, and might best be translated culture. Um, in the verb form, which is, which is what is used in, in Ephesians 6.4, that's the verb form that's being used there, it refers to a process, which is variously translated teaching, discipline, training, chastisement, admonishing, and might be translated inculturation or curriculum or race course. Okay? Now, it's interesting to me that, the, that all the Greek words used to describe and discuss educational matters let me read them to you. Instruction, teaching, schoolmaster, tutor, child, boy, girl, infant, correction, chastisement, and I think there's some other ones, but all of these words are rooted in the Greek word paideia, which the implication, of course, here is that paideia was both the context and the process by producing these Greeks through and through. Now, the important point here is when Paul speaks to the Ephesians about the paideia of the Lord, he was envisioning something quite different, wasn't he? From the Greek view of paideia. Paul was envisioning a new concept of Christian paideia. It's going to be a new type of community, a comprehensive vision that Paul had already seen by faith and revelation. The church, the body of Christ, was going to manifest on earth as a Christian culture. Christian community, common unity, centered in God. And I listed here quickly the topic, and a couple of brothers even read some of this earlier, but I listed the, the topics that Paul covered in the first five chapters of his letter to Ephesus, to the Ephesians, I mean, where he's speaking about the church, about God's eternal purpose, unity of the body or common unity, uh, church being the manifold, manifold wisdom of God. He'd spoken about an order and provision for equipping the saints through the fivefold ministry, meaning to disciple and equip the saints for works of service and ministry. And then he talks about the order of relationship within the family, husbands to wives, and then parents to children. Then he goes into chapter 6, where he speaks about bring your children up in the paideia, in the new thesis of the Lord. The kingdom of God, in other words. The cultural alternative, if you will, to Greek paideia. Now, Paul, was so, Paul wasn't opposed to the idea of paideia. 
he was just opposed to the Greek idea. And the apostle envisioned a credible thing here. He envisioned that believers were to become new creatures in Christ. He envisioned a new way of knowing by the Spirit. He envisioned an exodus and a pilgrimage out of the world systems of Ephesus. He envisioned establishing a citizenship, different kingdom under a different king. He envisioned an alternative culture that was going to touch every area of life. That God had an opinion and he had a pattern for every one of these things, which included diet, recreation, education, dress, peer relationships, relationship to the world, vocations, economy, and so on. So when, when Paul's speaking to the fathers about the educational goal to shape their children into the idea of Jesus as compared to an ideal Greek who was changed through and through, he was saying, we're going to do this as God's word defines it. We're going to do it as Jesus' life personified it. We're going to do it as the body of Christ was to exemplify it. And we're going to do it as God's spirit empowers the believer to conform and be perfected in the way that that they wish they should go. And then in turn, it, means, it requires that the child and the family is going to be rooted in a culture that promoted these ideals, these qualities. Now God, I mean, Paul understood all this. <clears throat> and so did the Greeks. And so do the humanists and secularists of today. They understand that. And that's why they seek so hard to dismiss all reckon, reckoning, I'll get it, <laughs> of Judeo-Christian heritage. That's why they work so hard to discredit the ideas of covenant, and faith in God, and, and such. Some of it is done directly by how they, what they speak and write. Other times, it's just by implication. It's just excluded. But either way, there's a message there that Brother Howard and the other brothers have shared has filtered into, the, into our hearts and our minds. Now, Paul said, as parents, we're supposed to bring the children up in the paideia of the Lord, but he also said new thesis of the Lord. So new thesis is part of, the, part of the admonition here. Now to paideia, which is training by action and example and discipline. Paul now adds new thesis, which is teaching and training by word and instruction primarily. Uh, new thesis, as I understand, it means to set the mind in its proper place. It's in submission to God's authority God's truth, and under the dominion of God's spirit. New thesis presupposes some obstacle to overcome. There's an obstacle that's going to stand in the way here. And it anticipates a resistance. Of course, the resistance we're coming against is the fall in mankind. It's the fall in, in you and in your children. So, by implication, new thesis is going to be most effective when it's brought forth and accomplished in the context of a Christian paideia. You, so when Paul speaks to parents here, he, uh, <clears throat> he's saying something that is essential to furthering the kingdom of God on the earth through families, through parental responsibilities, through parental, yeah, I'll just say responsibilities, duties, tasks, 
to bring them up in the piety and the thesis of the Lord. Now, when Paul, this, this is my, part of my interpretation here. When Paul says, bring them up in the piety and the thesis of the Lord, he wasn't just thinking about the children. Because te teaching and training the child is at the same time parent training. Okay, I should, I should have said that first, shouldn't I? Okay. It's accomplished through the parent and child relationship. And, uh, and I like to think in terms of this parent-child relationship and the teaching and training that comes through home education as being a window and mirror to the heart. It's a window, a channel, that allows you to see and feel what's in the heart of the child and to look carefully into their inner workings of their flesh. At the same time, uh, it's a mirror to the heart of the parent. The, the same responsibilities, the same task, the same proactive actions and duties and stuff. It's a window into the heart of the child and it's a mirror into the heart of the parent. Okay? So, when parents set standards for the child, and whether that be for character training or scholastics or basic skills or practical life skills or responsibilities or whatever, when a parent sets the standards for the child and then teaches to those standards and then places appropriate pressure and expectations on the child, expectations of quality and timeliness and such, what do you find? Well, what you hope you find is only positive character traits coming forth. That's what you're hoping for, right? Is that right, moms? Okay. That you're hoping for positive character traits. It's going to come forth. That is honor and respect and hearing ear and submission and complete, consistent, timely fulfillment of the responsibilities. That's what we're hoping for, right? Well, each time the child obeys, character is being built. Each time they do it with the right heart and the right attitude and do it the way you told them to and have trained them to do it, then character is being built, being reinforced. Skills are being acquired and knowledge is being gained. Okay? Yet, there are some times they don't obey. I know you've noticed that in the neighbor kids anyway. Yeah. Sometimes they don't obey. And when you look at the situation, you find out, well, this is dishonor. Right? It's disobedience. It's pride. It's meanness. It's greed. It's impatience. Irresponsibility. Half-heartedness. Absent-mindedness. I mean, I just pulled those from building Christian characters, so you, you know some of them. So, through consistent, proactive teaching and training, the parent is given a window, channel, granting access to feel and to see and to hear what's resident in the child's heart. Now, at the same time, the same relationships and the same responsibilities provide a mirror to the heart of the parent capable of revealing the carnal tendencies and the character flaws in you, me. Revealing the lack of agape love, lack of self-sacrificing love at times, 
revealing the lack of genuine burden sometimes for our children. So the teaching and training which takes place in the parent-child relationship is a win-win situation. That is, each time the child decides to obey, does what the parent asks, characters being built, everybody wins. Child wins, the parent wins. Okay? When the child disobeys and negative character flaws are exposed, this calls for focused ministry, neuthetic ministry. Comes into play until the child or the parent gets the victory. Again, everybody wins. Okay? The only way anybody loses is if the child is not taught and trained responsibly to begin with through permissiveness or child-centeredness or just unwilling to exert any real authority into the situation, so therefore we just allow the child to go their own way, then everybody loses. First the child, then the parent. Now, so one, when God gave parents the responsibility and the capacity to teach and train their children, he wasn't just thinking of the child. Because when the parents look carefully into this mirror, they're going to catch a glimpse of their own impatience, selfishness, self-centeredness, laziness, pride, irresponsibility. It's all reflected right back to them. And they may discover things. You may discover things about yourself. They may discover things about themselves that they didn't know was there. Or they simply may not want to have it dealt with. That's why we want and know that Christian homeschooling needs to be accomplished in the context of the local church. It needs to be accomplished there. It needs to be rooted in the local church, the body of Christ, to be covered and supported by the fivefold ministry, the gifts in the body, to prepare God's people, families, parents, for works of, including parents, for works of service and ministry to their children, for the building up of families, that both the parent and the child will attain to the fullness of Christ. Now, I've heard some say over the years that, uh, especially in regard to homeschooling, I can't do this. I've even heard couples say, I don't want to do this. Not, not here, but I have heard it. I don't want to do this. Okay, but that's fine. Either way, you forfeit the rewards that come when you have, have a conviction about this matter and you obey God and fulfill your responsibilities to your children no matter what the cost. Hmm? Yes, sometimes there are extenuating circumstances that at first glance make it seem impossible. But in the Lord, you finish it. All things are possible. And in the church, the needs that may very well be there can be met in a relational, loving, encouraging way. Now, I want to read something to you here. Uh, over the years, <laughs> I've heard all kinds of responses to, uh, to the question of parents taking total personal responsibility for the education and training of their children. Uh, and I've also heard various responsibility when the idea of home education might actually be God's ideal way to accomplish that task. 
Now, a number of years ago, <laughs> I was making a presentation. This was at a Christian education conference. I was making a presentation on homeschooling. And uh, I think this was in Phoenix or someplace. I don't remember where it was. And uh, we were in a hall like this. There was an aisle down the middle, and about five rows back on the aisle, there was a mom sitting there. And uh, when I got done with my, what I thought was a friendly presentation on homeschooling, she jumped up and headed up towards me. And uh, uh, she was uh, intent. Anyway, she says to me, I think I, think I wrote this down uh, verbatim. She said, homeschooling, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard of. And that's something I could and would never do. I mean, I've given them, I mean, I've already given them the first six years. You know, isn't that enough? Don't I deserve some time to myself? Then I had another mother, I think, as I remember, I was kind of right on her heels, and the, now both of them are headed my way. This other mother said, I can't get along with my children now. And you want me to bring them home all day, all year, for their entire childhood? I said, well, yeah, that's kind of what I was kind of thinking of. You know, she replied, she said the same thing. I had them all summer. I have them holidays. I have them on weekends. Surely that's enough. Surely nobody expects more than that out of me. Now, we laugh about it, but how would you account for that? Uh, what's at work here? I mean, we, we talk about the me, me, me generation. You know, me is a powerful little word. Me, I mean, it can establish who and what forms the center of your life. It's that powerful. And what about my life? Don't I deserve some time to myself? Well, of course, God does give us times of rest and relaxation, yet Jesus did leave us with an example, didn't he? Example of servant when he said, it's not my will, but it's thy will be done. And he also taught that self-sacrificing love carries its own reward. And pressing into these givens of life is where you're going to find that true fulfillment. Now, <laughs> I had a third mother, no, it wasn't at this conference, this was different. I'm going to give you a third example, though. This is what she said to me. She said, I didn't have these problems. Now, what, notice what she's saying. I didn't have these problems till I brought those kids, speaking of her own children here, those kids home to begin, to bring them home to begin teaching them. I didn't have those problems until I brought those kids home. And she was pretty forceful, indignant, and you know, veins sticking down the side of her. No, no, it wasn't that bad. But. And for just a minute, for just a fleeting minute, I wanted to remind her that seed reproduces after seed. <laughs> and that may, may explain some of the actions of those children. Well, thankfully, I, I refrained. But what was the fact of the matter? What was the truth of the matter? See, you see, she did have those problems. She just couldn't see them. And when she took her rightful place at the window, 
all of a sudden she could see into, into the children's heart, which she had never taken the steps before. She'd not taken her place at the window of her heart, and neither had she stood before the mirror, which would have reflected her own character flaws back to her. So, you know, when, when, when she began to take those responsibilities, she brought her kids home and begins to teach and love and relate and train them on a new level, she got her first glance into this window. And when she did, she didn't understand it, nor did she like what she saw. And in this case, she wanted to blame homeschooling. But was that the problem? That wasn't, that wasn't the problem. The problem was she didn't want to fully embrace the responsibilities and, the, and the, the relationships that God had given her to begin with. That's the problem. She did not want to deal with the very thing she disliked in her own children. For if she had, then she would have come to grips with the fact that they were in her also. So, when you look carefully into the mirror, through responsibilities that God has given you, to teach and train those babies, it's one of the reasons they're gifts. Show you who you are. You know, when you take a careful look in the mirror, you're going to see your own impatience, selfishness, self-centeredness, laziness, pride, irresponsibility, all staring right back at you. And you may discover things that you didn't know were there. Now what? Well, the Lord gives us children. He gives us an order of relationship. He has us relate to the gifts, service, and ministerial uh, gifts and abilities inside the church, which in the body, to help provide the answers through new thesis. And there's not a better way to find out what's in you and what's in your children than when you accept the responsibility that God gave you to teach and train them. And when you proactively enter into that relationship, you're going to see in their hearts in ways you've never seen before. And it's going to be reflected back to you of what may or may not be there. Okay? Now, one other point here. Uh, when Paul speaks about the Pidea and the thesis of the Lord, it seems to me that by implication, he's seeing various elements and aspects of all of this working together uh, within an all-inclusive idea of the Lord. Okay. Uh, why? Because all of life, we would hope you would come to see that all of life is an education, that all of life is a living curriculum in a Christian culture. It's not, you know, in public schools, we used to talk about a well-rounded education. You've heard that. Maybe you haven't, but that was a phrase that was popular. In other words, you can take unrelated bits and pieces and fragments of this and that, and if you stack them all up and you put them in some kind of orderly fashion, that's education, except it's not a whole education. It's, it's, it's a well-rounded in their idea, but that's not what we're after. We seek, rather, an education that is a synthesized whole. Okay? It's capable of bringing forth wholeness in the child. So we seek a Christ-centered life, we seek a Christ-centered home, through home education and such, centered in relationships and responsibilities that were defined by the Lord himself. It's an education that's motivated by love. It's guided and empowered 
by his spirit, by his truth, and it's situated in the church, the body of Christ. And if we then come to a true conviction that's possessed by a saving faith, we look to the Lord all things, then all things are possible. That all things are possible in the Lord. Now, I'm going to ask you to bear with me here because I want to read you something. I've, I've got a, an abridged definition that I've largely taken from Wisdom's Children Education Exodus, but it, I've tried to capture some of those elements that are, that are, that are in those materials uh, in, in this abridged definition, and it's the answer to my, fr my, my answer to my friend's question. And when I talked about Carl, he was the one that asked me whether or not there was such a thing as a Christian education. I have an answer for Carl now. So this is what I'm going to read to you. And it's, it's somewhat lengthy. Is that okay? Okay. Christian education is the perfection of man in the image and likeness of God as personified in Jesus, as revealed and accomplished through his word, the leading of his spirit, as those who are called and led of God seek to acquire those treasures of wisdom and knowledge found only in him. This kind of education is centered in God, his word rooted and synthesized in an integrated whole, set within the covenantal context of the family, the larger nurturing and discipling relationships of the body as it increasingly manifests itself on earth as an alternative biblical agrarian-based cultural reality of intentional, sustainable Christian community centered in Christ. It is in this context, as parents seek to understand and implement God's cultural and educational alternatives, that Christian parents find their surest aim and purpose for teaching and training their children while they lead them on an exodus and then a journey together on a lifelong pilgrimage from one kingdom to another, from the kingdoms of this world to the kingdom of God and his land of promise. A true authentic education will include everything a child needs to know, but that he needs to know, but more importantly, what a child needs to be in character and devotion to God in order to participate in, contribute to, and benefit from the nurturing and discipling habitat of an alternative biblical culture and educating community. This education would also include taking responsible dominion over every area that God places in their hands. It includes finding their place of calling, place of service within the body, contributing both individually and corporately to the testimony of God's agape love and wisdom to the lost and dying world. And the parental privilege, the delegated responsibility, and the compelling obligation would also include teaching and training the next generation of youth in such a way as to provide a continuity of aim and purpose and commitment from one generation to the next. Therefore, through the church and the family, along with their ordered relationships and compelling responsibilities regarding Christian education, that includes Christian homeschooling, we find the who, why, when, where, and how parents and children alike are equipped participate relationally, experientially, in God's eternal purpose for mankind on the earth. And here, in the context of family, in the context of restored New Testament church, authentic Christian parenting and authentic Christian education 
finds its cultural and its educational promised land? That's my answer to Carl's question. I'm sorry, I regret that I never had a chance to thank him. He sent me on a search. And uh, so I say thank you, Carl, but thank you, Lord, for showing leading. I believe that this is the only kind of education in which we have the hope and the aim of bringing forth wisdom's children. Okay, and yes, the junctures and the curves are, we have, they're, hard, they're, they're tough. We're, we're gonna negotiate down a fairly difficult path here. Uh, there's issues to reckon with, battles rage, conflicts intense, as both Satan and God are serious about the parent's success or failure in this matter. How parents resolve these matters in their own hearts and minds is going to determine the direction they set. It's going to influence the course that they're going to follow through the parenting years. And I'll read one more statement. It's my statement of hope for you, for me. My hope is that each of you will find your parenting and educational promised land. That an authentic Christian education will be a part of your witness and a part of your testimony to your children and to those who observe your life, validating that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and you are being shaped, molded, and fashioned into his wonderful likeness. And with the Lord's help, you're passing it on to your sons, your daughters, and don't forget your grandchildren. So welcome to Homestead Heritage here at Brazos Adios. Welcome to the Paideia of the Lord and our attempt to understand and obey Paul's admonition to train our children up in the new thesis, I mean in the, in the uh, Paideia and the new thesis of the Lord. And do yourself a favor. Go out there and if you haven't already, go buy those two books. Read them once a year at least. Because uh, these books will help you Keep your eyes on the prize. It'll help you to hold on. You know, this whole thing about the window and mirror came to me back when I was, actually, I was a Christian school administrator. And, I, you know, I used to send the notes home. You know, I was, tried to keep a fairly tight ship. So when I see kids horsing around or violating the patterns and such, I'd call the parents. And more often than not, I'd explain this thing. I, was, I didn't feel like I was picky. You know, I, I felt like when they violated something the parents needed to know, I was going to communicate to them, right? And more often than not, the parents would say, I don't see that in my child. And I, after a while, I began thinking, is that really true? Are they all, they're surely not all lying to me. And then the Lord showed me. They really didn't see because they'd abdicated that responsibility to some another pair of eyes. They didn't any longer stand at the wind of the child's heart. They gave it, delegated to somebody, somebody else to do. And then when they did that, all the parent had to go on was externals. You know what I mean? And it doesn't take long for a a youngster that's 10, 12, 15 years old to develop all the right kinds of externals 
all the right kind of images, right? And say they learn pretty quick that the parent's not examining what's going on in my heart. If I can just keep my, my action clean and my eyes right and my language and speech and keep my grades up, I've got it made. But they couldn't look into their hearts. And it wasn't. And then the Lord showed me when a parent begins to teach and train, accepting first the responsibility with an internal cry of God, please help me fulfill the duties and responsibilities you're given to me. When that begins to happen, the window opens, the channel becomes pure, and you start seeing these things in your kids. And then the first thing you know, why don't they work? Why this happened, that happened? Well, go look in the mirror. So it's a window and mirror. So that's why I said yesterday, you know, Christian education is not just about children. It's about you too. It's been that way ever since the beginning. And isn't it a wonderful plan?